Well, good morning, 9 a.m. How y'all feeling? Good, man. I love the energy. I'm super happy to be with you. My name is Andrew. I am the pastor of our student ministry. Uh, pastor Mike is on vacation, and so I've been given the privilege to be with you, but he did tell me to tell you he's excited to be back next week in the book of John. And so um, I'm excited to hear that when he comes back. I love when he comes back from vacation. There's always a little extra sizzle in the fire. You know what I'm saying? I, can just, I just feel like the, the extra, extra in it. It's great. Um, so I love the scriptures, and one of the things that I love about the scriptures is that it's one interconnected story leading to Jesus. And there are many motifs in scripture from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. You've got things like prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament, and then Jesus is the true prophet, priest, and king. You have in the Old Testament a view that God is angry at sin, righteously angry at sin, and then up into Jesus, you see the way that he deals with that sin. You have Jesus with, with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then there's Satan in the feud, and then there's the destruction of Satan in the end of Revelation. There's, there's storylines that weave all throughout the scriptures, and one of them, I think, is especially compelling. Well, all of them are true and biblical and helpful. I think one of them is incredibly compelling to a lost generation, and that is the dwelling place of God with man. You see, I feel that many people today feel emotionally and spiritually homeless. They feel isolated and separated, and Jesus brings us back into a home with him. You know the national life expectancy has gone down for the last two years in a row? A large part of that statistic going down is because of um, drug abuse and suicide. And that's terrible. But it's indicative of something in our hearts that's crying out for more. People want hope, a genuine hope. We see this in our movies. We see this in, in the fun and adventure and fantasy land of movies, right? You see this in Disney World with Avatar, and you see this in, in movies like, like uh, Shang-Chi when they go through a waterfall and they explore a world full of dragons and beauty and mystery, or Avatar where they explore a brand new world, and, and your heart aches, doesn't it, when you watch movies, where you're like, I want a new home, a new place to be, well, my argument is that you were created for a new home and that that aching is real. C.S. Lewis is the genius that brought us through the wardrobe into Narnia. Here's his perspective on this idea. He said, if I can find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, we crave in our, in our core a world full of peace and beauty and justice and fun a world full of freedom, hope, art, science, and music, a, a world as it should be in rhythm and shalom. And I believe that that same desire is the hope of Christianity. But I feel like sometimes the lens of our camera of our life is zoomed in so much that we miss the overarching story of scripture. We're so zoomed in that we miss out on the bigger picture. For example, we rightly say that God hates sin. We also articulate that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that if we trust in him as our Savior and Lord, we go to heaven when we die. Is that true or false? It's absolutely true, praise be to God. At the same time though, sometimes when you zoom in on a picture, you only get a small taste of it, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Can we just be honest for a minute? 
when, if we were unbelievers and knew nothing of Christianity, if we said, you've offended a spiritual being and you need to believe in him in order for him not to send you to hell after you die. It's like, well, I just pray a prayer and think a thought and then I'm good to go, right? It seems like a very odd and perplexing set of ideas. But in the broader stanza of scripture, man, it comes to life. So please join me now on a brief tour of the scriptures looking at God's dwelling place among man. Let me first, let's pray. Lord, we love you and we are um, anticipating your work. Lord, we are so thankful that you choose to pursue us and be near us. And so I pray now as we look at your scriptures that they would come to life, that we would have a vivid understanding of what you are up to in the world and that we would join in and do our part. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth is formless and void and the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. We learn in John and Colossians that Jesus created everything and we know that the spirit of God hovering over the waters was one of the agents of that recreation for a home. You see, the Spirit of God and, and Jesus and the Father, they, in six simple days, create a beautiful home for Adam and Eve. But did you know that it's not just for Adam and Eve? It was a home for where God could meet with and be with Adam and Eve. You see, this home in the garden had fruit trees everywhere. It was almost more of an orchard. That's probably a better word to use. And it had precious stones and metals. You read about the gold and you're like, why is this in here? This isn't helpful. But it was a place of beauty and, and, and refinement. It was also a place that had cherubim, we read in chapter three. It had angelic beings walking around. And Adam and Eve are walking in the very presence of God. There is no barrier at all. They are in the holy place with God and they can sustain it because there was no sin. And so there's a spirit of God doing his creative work. There's fruit trees, precious metals, angels. And, and this is gonna come back later. Let's go back a slide, I'm sorry. Um, Adam and Eve are walking in the presence of God. Take note of this because this is gonna pick up again later in the passage. Well, next up in Genesis 1, God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, Adam and Eve were created in God's image with a role and an identity to image God into the world. It is a noun, but it is a verbal noun where their job is to reflect what God is like into the known world. He says to multiply, have a bunch of kids who also will image God into the world and reflect who he is. They're called to rule. They're called to be kings and queens, vice regents under Yahweh, their God, representing him into the world. They're called to create, build, study, and glorify God and enjoy God in the house of God. Speaking of the house of God, Michael Morales, the, uh, the, the theologian, writes this. Entering the house of God to dwell with God, beholding, glorifying, and enjoying him eternally, I suggest, is the story of the Bible. It's the plot that makes sense of the various acts, persons, and places of its pages. 
It's the deepest context for its doctrines. Beholding, glorifying, and enjoying God in the house of God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what you were created for. You were created to enjoy God eternally in his presence with absolutely no barrier. But you know how the story goes. It continues on into chapter three. Adam and Eve sin, they eat the fruit they're forbidden to eat, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You see, the first words after humanity's first sin shows that God is already pursuing mankind. He could have been like, all right, game over, we'll start over, and then destroyed everything. But instead, he says, no, where are you? He is hunting Adam and Eve down. It's so important to, to recognize as we paint a picture of what God is like, to recognize that he is pursuing humanity right off the bat. In Genesis 3:21, he curses Satan, he curses the world, not humans. Um, and then it says this in, chapter, in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim, the spiritual warrior being, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence and the tree of life. And, and an angelic force was placed as a sentry to keep them from getting back into his presence. You know how the story continues. There's a family feud Cain kills Abel, and he's not just kicked out of the garden now. No, he's kicked out of Eden entirely, and he goes east of Eden. After that, the people build up a tower trying to make a name for themselves to get to God on their own terms, and God confuses their language and spreads them not just out of Eden, not just out of the garden, but across the known world, further from the presence of God and further from the tree of life. Well, for our purposes, we need to fast forward a lot now. We're gonna skip the flood, the calling of Abraham and his family, and we're gonna get to Exodus chapter three. Israel is currently in slavery in Egypt, and Moses was on the run for a murder that he committed in Egypt. He's a shepherd, and he, re he receives the most mysterious call from God. Read with me in Exodus chapter three. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And I've got a question for you. 
Why does the God who pursues humanity simultaneously warn them not to come any closer when they're in his presence? Why does God say, I wanna be near you, I'm coming after you, I wanna chase you down, but then in the same moment when they get too close, he says, don't come any closer. It's because the presence of God is dangerous to unholy beings. If we ever get to the place when Elon Musk takes us into intergalactic space travel, we'll see, we'll have to avoid stars. Why? Because stars are really great on planet Earth, but they're very dangerous when you get too close. In the same exact way, the presence of God is dangerous when you get too close to it. He is totally good, but he is dangerous. He deserves respect and even sometimes in this context, distance, because the presence of God is so intense, it is dangerous. By the way, Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not the man upstairs. He is your God. He is your sovereign maker. And I think there's a healthy dose of fear that we should have. And if you're wearing that shirt today, I apologize. (laughs) You are embarrassed but he is not your homeboy. He is the divine creator of the world. But it's in his presence that we find everything we need. Well, you know the story goes, Moses goes to Pharaoh, he demands the people's freedom, 10 plagues happen, and the people then leave Egypt, and they go to settle at the same mountain, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, same mountain, and they're about to receive the law from God, which is, in a lot of ways, a wedding ceremony between God and his people. Well, in Exodus chapter 19, We read this, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Skipping down to verse 16, he says this, on the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Can you imagine seeing this moment for real? Man, this would change who you are, wouldn't it? This is, this is a core memory maker moment. When you start to think differently about the universe, your God descends in fire on a mountain and you see the flames, you hear the roaring thunder, you experience something and the people react just like you and I would. Chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. They trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
This illustrates perfectly the problem that we are in. The problem doesn't start, by the way, with God's anger or God's amazing power. The problem starts with his goodness and our sin in his presence. You see, God is good and angry at sin, which is also good. Because sin is at its core a perversion of what was made right. Sin is a distortion of what is good. Satan cannot create pleasure. Satan can only pervert the pleasure that God created as good. And so when God sees sin, he gets angry because he created shalom and beauty and rhythm and rest in the Garden of Eden, and every sin is an offense to the God who made things perfect. God is good and he won't tolerate sin, which is also good. The people are terrified and they say, talk to God for us. We don't wanna talk to God, we are terrified. You see, God is holy. And that word holy doesn't just mean shiny or bright, but holiness means distinction and otherness. But it also means life as it was meant to be. You see, Adam and Eve were holy in the garden. And what did they have? They had a job. Not, not, work is not bad, work is good. It's made before the fall. They had a job to do. They also had fruit to eat. They also had sex and play and the presence of God. Man, holiness was a party. Holiness was living as we were made to live. And I tell you what, you don't want a God who isn't perfectly holy. But people oftentimes say one of two things about this terrifying God. They say, number one, God shouldn't really punish sinners. Why is God so angry at sin? You have the child sacrificing Canaanites. Why did God kill the Canaanites? You have the people of Sodom that die, but they're sexually abusive. Why did God kill them? That's number one. At the same time, they say, why hasn't God destroyed evil yet? Why did God let Hitler live so long? Why hasn't God taken out the abuser? Do you see the problem with these two arguments? One says, I want God's mercy when I want it. The other said, I want God's justice when I want it. And the truth is, God doesn't live on your timetable. God is wiser than you are. Trust his mercy and justice on the time that he wants to give it. It's a very interesting thought. But the truth is, if God deals with sin, he also has to deal with us. And God's desire is to dwell amongst us, so how does this all fit into this, this picture? How are we to live amongst a God who is the source of life and joy and beauty and hope? Well, God's purpose was Eden, to live amongst us. So how can sinful people live amongst them? Check out this other quote by Michael Morales, the scholar. It is preferable to discern holiness, not as an end in itself, but rather as a means to an end, which is the real theme, the abundant life of joy with God in the house of God. You see, if you achieve holiness, that's great. You're just holy. But holiness was a means to experience the very presence of God, which is what we were created to be. But how can we become holy? What's the means of living the abundant life of joy with God in the house of God? Enter in the tabernacle. Y'all say tabernacle. We don't say that enough. Say it again, tabernacle. It's a good word. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know why we did that. Tabernacle is the house that the Israelites constructed in order to enter into the presence of God. It was filled with things like the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the table, the lampstands. Um, the tabernacle had a really cool look to it, as well, by the way, as well. It had in it, had flowers and fruit tree imagery sewn into the very fabric and, and the colors and the beauty. It had angel imagery. You had cherubim guarding the mercy seat. 
You had precious metals and stones, a lot of gold and gems and jewels, and it also had spirit-filled artisans. If you read Exodus 31, you read that the Holy Spirit entered two men who constructed the tabernacle. We always read in the book of Judges about God sending the Spirit of God to give them great heroic acts, but in this scene, God actually sends the Spirit of God to make these artists create what God wanted to create, which was a space where God and humans could dwell together in union. And so they create the tabernacle. And by the way, I want you to notice this, the similarities between the tabernacle and the garden. Both of them had the spirit of God's presence there. Both of them had a lot of fruit trees and flower imagery. Both of them had precious metals and stones. Both had angels guarding the way to the presence of God, the cherubim posted on the garden or the cherubim guarding the mercy seat. And both of them had a place where people could enter in and experience the intense presence of God. You see, the tabernacle was an image of Eden. It was a saying, this is a space where God and man can dwell together. And it was pointing Israelites back to the promise that God wants to dwell again with his people. Now here's the problem though. The tent wasn't enough. They also had to have procedures in place to get to experience the presence of God. And the procedures are all written down in your Bible in a tidy little book called Leviticus. Really good read. (laughs) Who has not read Leviticus before? You all have? Wow, that's amazing. Y'all, Leviticus is actually super rich. I'd encourage you to get a commentary and get Leviticus. It is so rich because the entire thing points forward to Jesus. I wanna, I wanna prove it to you why it's so cool. In Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, which is the last verses before Leviticus, it says this. Then the cloud covered the tents of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They constructed it, and God's presence descends on it. But Moses was not able to enter the tents of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses can't get into God's presence. Are you seeing this? This is a big problem. Fast forward to Leviticus chapter one, verse one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And so now Moses is in the temple, sorry, Moses is outside the tabernacle, but God's speaking to him and saying, hey, here's the plans in order to come experience my presence. Now look at Numbers 1.1. This is after the book of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in the tent of meeting. Meaning this, the procedures of Leviticus worked. The the plans and the sacrifices and the rules about mixed fabric, they work. Now I want you to know that the rules in Leviticus seem very foreign to 21st century people. Why do we have to wear a certain kind of clothes or why do we have to avoid shellfish? Why do we have to not mix two different types of seed in the same field? But I promise you that to an ancient Israelite, every one of these rules would have made perfect sense. It was so crystal clear to them, and we can get into cool dialogue later about some of the purpose behind these rules, but I'll say this right now. There's two primary issues of God being in the presence of the Israelites. First was cleanliness, and not just clean your room cleanliness. If you touched a dead body, or bodily fluids, or diseased skin, you were unclean, ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't enter the presence of God until you did certain things to experience God's presence. That's number one. But number two, you're relationally unclean because of sin. And the book of Leviticus gives descriptions on how to fix both of those issues, and it's crazy, but it's sacrifice. 
You see, in the Day of Atonement, the Israelites would all gather together and they'd place their hand on a goat's head and they'd confess the sins of the people, symbolically placing the sin of the community on that animal's head, and then they would kill it as a way to say, this sin, please don't look on us anymore, look on this animal instead. It became a, an atonement, a covering up, and a washing from the people's sin. This is all gonna become really important later. And, and you might think, man, that's a lot of hassle just to get in the presence of God, to have to sacrifice and avoid mixed fabrics and X, Y, Z. But here's the thing, Moses loved the presence of God. It was everything to him. Look at Exodus 33, verse 15. Moses said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. Y'all, he was living in the desert, and he was promised the promised land, but Moses says, I don't want it if you're not coming with me. I don't want the blessing unless you are with me in the moment. Y'all, do you prioritize the presence of God like Moses did? I don't wanna guilt you into it, but man, the presence of God is so good. It is so worth it. The presence of God is, is the best thing ever. Look how the psalmist describes it many, many years later. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's better to be in God's space for one day than to spend an entire year at Magic Kingdom or Colorado, or Hawaii, or Paris. God's presence is better than money, or power, or comfort. God's presence is worth everything because in his presence, we find everything. The Garden of Eden meeting with God, we find hope. In God's presence, we find justice. We find mercy, we find truth. And it wasn't just a relational thing with God, it was the community was gathered around the tabernacle. It was interconnected, it was relational. This is the place when people would settle feuds and God would be there with them and they would solve issues. It was delight to be in the presence of God. He was their God and they were his people. Well, hundreds of years later, the tabernacle turns into the temple with Solomon and the temple is Tabernacle 2.0. It is permanent, it's got a lot more gold on it, it still has fruit tree imageries, it still has a gigantic cherubim guarding the holy place, and it still is a place to meet with God. And it still was a picture of Eden. Well, Israel continues to sin, and Assyria and Babylon take turns over the many years, absolutely destroying the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. Ezekiel is in Babylon, and he sees through the vision the spirit of God actually leaving the temple towards the end of the Minor Prophets. God's presence is now gone from the temple because the people were coming in to destroy the temple. But in the middle of this vision, Ezekiel also says this, that one day God would be our God, we would be his people, and he would dwell with us. And even if the Spirit of God did come back, it was still only a temporary measure and not God's vision for Eden, not God's vision for life. God's desire is to dwell with you. People have a wrong view of God, I think. And I think that it's not a wrong view of God in our heads, but our hearts. They rightly see that God hates sin, which is true. And they see a terrifying God who is holy, and that's also true. But they miss out that without sin, life was as it meant to be in the terrifying, beautiful presence of God. 
and they miss out that God is pursuing humans, and we see this most clearly in the name Emmanuel, which towards the end of the Minor Prophets, God promises that Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. God was not done with his people. And the name God with us does not necessarily just mean God for us or God having our back or God on our team, but God among us, God with us. Because in Jesus, the presence of God has landed. In Matthew 17, verse four, we have a moment when Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and they climb a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured in their presence. And who do they see? They see Moses and Elijah. And Peter starts to shout off and say a really weird thing, but then when you understand the context, it makes so much more sense. He says, Lord, it's good that we're here. He sees the glory of Jesus. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He says, I wanna make a tent for you. This word tent is literally tabernacle. He says, I wanna make a tent for you because God is up to something here and this glorious moment is scary for me to be in your presence. So I wanna make a tabernacle for each one of you guys because this is, this is terrifying to me. And we read this and we're like, oh, it's no big deal. No, it was a big deal to be in the presence of Jesus in his glorious state. And so they're gonna build a tabernacle for him. Well, what happens next is the cloud descends just like it did in Exodus and it falls and it covers up the three men standing there. And Peter's left just scratching his head, what in the world? Well, the word that he used for tent here is the Greek word skene, and it simply means tent, tabernacle, or dwelling. Turn with me now to John chapter one. John chapter one. By the way, Pastor Mike is doing a great job in John. <laughs> I'm not trying to do anything here. <laughs> John chapter one. Verse one, y'all ready? Here we go. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. To an ancient Jewish reader, they would have read that Jesus is the logos, the word, the very wisdom and presence of God. And like, okay, yeah, that's awesome. That's so great. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. At this moment, I'm pretty sure their jaws would have hit the floor. The, the pure logos of God the, the, the presence of God that lived in the tabernacle, the very presence of God dwelt among us. This word dwelt here is, again, it's a Greek word, skene. It means to tabernacle. So when Jesus came to earth, he tabernacled among us in much the same way the Israelites had a tabernacle amongst them in the Old Testament. The very presence of God is there in Jesus. He is the tabernacle. He is the holy of holies. He is the mobile tent come to the world to bring the presence of God down. It's so cool. 
It's so cool. Every single Jewish reader would have been like, he's a tabernacle. He's the one coming to dwell amongst humans. He is the mobile tent. You see, in the Septuagint, when you'd read it, you'd read the skene, the tabernacle, and the tabernacle. And then it says Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the very dwelling place of God amongst people. You see, in the Old Testament, if you were ritually impure, you'd have to go to the temple or the tabernacle and sacrifice an animal. You'd have to go to God's presence. In the New Testament, the tabernacle has come to people. God has come to us. In the Old Testament, you had to go to the temple to experience the kind of making right with God through the sacrifice of an animal. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, whether you're ritually pure or positionally impure, Jesus came as the tabernacle, as the temple to solve both problems. As a matter of fact, one of the sayings that Jesus got in trouble for most was saying, destroy the temple, I'm gonna rebuild it in three days. And you find out later, he's talking about his body, the temple, the very presence of God. Jesus saw himself as the mobile temple, the mobile tabernacle of God. In Luke chapter eight, Jesus is walking along and there's a woman who has perpetual bleeding. She's unclean. She touches Jesus. Immediately, does Jesus become ritually impure? No, he heals the woman. It's the presence of God going out. In Matthew eight, Jesus touches a leper. Does that make him ritually unclean? No, he heals the leper. It's the presence and goodness and power of God literally going out into the world. This is so remarkable. Every Jewish person reading this would have been blown away. And then as I said, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. And if you trust in that sacrifice, you can enter into God's presence in a very real way again. Even at the death of Jesus, he is on the cross and a a thief is next to him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says these famous words, today you will be with me in, in paradise, and paradisos. In Genesis two, paradisos meant garden. Jesus says you'll be with me today in the union of heaven and earth where humans and God can dwell together again. And yes, this wasn't really the garden, but it's the presence of God. Because when Jesus thinks about heaven, He thinks about the unity of heaven and earth where man and God can dwell together. In his mind, it's about presence with people and God amongst man again. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a really fun word. It's the word schizo, and it's only used twice in the entire Gospel. The first time it's used is when Jesus is baptized. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being schizoed, torn open, and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, and he said, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. You see, when Jesus sent the Spirit of God down, he tore back the heavens, which is a really strange concept for us, sends the Spirit of God down and declares his belovedness for his son. At the very end of the book in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 15, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was schizoed. It was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning the presence of God in the temple was no longer needing to be separate so he didn't roast the sinners outside. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the temple curtain, like the heavens, could be torn open so God's presence could dwell with mankind once again. 
There was an overlap. You see, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were barred from the presence of God. In Exodus 3, God tells Moses, don't come any closer. At Mount Sinai, the mountain is shaking. The people say, I don't wanna go near that God because he's terrifying. But now, when the temple curtain is torn in two, God's space intersects with ours because God's permanent sacrifice in Jesus has taken away the tension between man and God. There is overlap again. God is among us in Jesus. And we're gonna look at Couple more things, but go now with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 is the end of the story. It's the beginning of our true life. After the rapture, the tribulation, the wrath of God, after the millennial reign, after all of the experiences written down in the book of Revelation, we arrive at Revelation 21. By the way, I read this sometimes and I feel like weeping. I hope that you enjoy this passage and just feast on it. It's glorious. Chapter 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That word dwelling place is tabernacle. My Bible's a footnote, it's tabernacle. He will tabernacle with them. He will dwell with them. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In verse 22, we keep reading, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. There's no longer any need for a tabernacle or temple. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the books, Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. You see, this is Garden of Eden imagery like crazy, but it's a city now. Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and the unification of God's space and our space is permanent in a garden city. This is your hope. There is life after death in heaven, in the paradise, in God's presence, but after the resurrection from the dead, God makes a new heaven and a new earth, and we are humans on earth with God in that eternal space forever. That is compelling to me. People in the lost world need to know this is not just escapism from hell, but this is living life as it was meant to be in a garden city in the intense presence of God forever. There is hope beauty, 
life as it was meant to be with the tree of life, with your creator. You ever, you ever wonder why there's images of gold and silver? It's because that's what Eden was like. There's fruit trees and plants, that's what Eden was like. There's a city, this is what God is calling us to move towards, to build. We are in the very presence of God. The dwelling place of God is with man. This is why our hearts ache for a new home, because God designed you for the new heavens and new earth. This is why your heart aches. But we missed one temple, did you catch it? There's one temple that we missed. First Corinthians six, verse 19 says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, within whom you, within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So honor and glorify God in your body. You are the temple right now. When Jesus, the mobile tabernacle of God, ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit down to indwell in his church, his bride and his people. And we like to take this as a cute metaphor, that man, we're the temple of God, we're the body of Christ. No, we are the very vehicle of God's presence on earth in us. Do you realize this? This is critical we get this right. The vehicle of God's grace and mercy is still through Jesus, but we are the means of bringing that message and that justice and that hope into the world. In the same way, the tabernacle was the center of life and justice and relational equity in the ancient world, we are called to be that today. We are the means of God's restorative creative work on earth. I wonder, are we doing it? And this is not an ought to, folks, this is a get to. This is a God is among us, and if you meditate and quiet your heart and sit in his presence, you're gonna experience the presence of God, and then people around you should experience that same presence of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor God with your body. I have, I have uh, four application points today. As you round this down, I'd encourage you to pick one of them. Number one, Meditate on this reality. God's attitude is to be around you. A lot of us have to undo bad theology because of daddy issues or broken relationships or whatever, right? We all have pain and challenges from different relationships that inform how we view God. I have students that I'll say God's a good father and they say I hope not because my father was messed up. We all have to do that a little bit undo what we think about who God is. I wanna encourage you that God's attitude is to be around you. Even in your mess, knowing full well every sin that you were going to commit, God still sent Jesus to be near you. The temple curtain was torn in two. Meditate on that reality. There's no longer distance between you and God. If you are keeping your fellowship with God upright and continuing to 1 John 1, 9, your sins, continue to confess your sins, if you're pursuing God, there is no more distance. Romans 8, 1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, y'all. We are, we are justified with God. And some of y'all wanna live as if you're not in the Holy of Holies with God anymore. I wanna challenge you, rethink this, meditate on this reality, finally God is close. And Acts, Peter says that God is closer than we could possibly imagine, not far from any one of us. Believe that, meditate on that reality. Number two, I'd encourage you to hope for a future garden city. Hope does the heart a lot of good, doesn't it? Some of us are afraid to hope. 
We see bitter news after bad accident, after whatever. I would encourage you, stir up some hope again in your soul because hope does a lot of good. Maybe you're here and you need to read Revelation 21 and 22 a few times every day for the next couple weeks. Stimulate some hope. It's gonna be good. God is gonna restore the world. He's gonna create a new heavens and new earth and you will dwell with him forever. That's good news, y'all. And we need to hope in that. You can have a confident expectation of the future in Jesus that God is going to build a home for you and it's gonna be with him in his presence. Number three, I'm gonna challenge you. Are you evaluating if you are personally displaying the presence of God? Because here's the thing. You could be a great temple. You are a person of justice and beauty. You're a person who is loving and kind and compassionate. You speak truth when it's necessary. You are compassionate and kind. You're close to the Lord. Or maybe you're grieving the Holy Spirit, which you can do. How's your fellowship? You see, Jesus went into the temple and he tossed tables to cleanse it. Are there tables in your life the Lord has to cleanse? You see, even though it was the very presence of God in the Old Testament, people would bring in idols at times and place them in the very temple of God. And God was really mad about it, worshiping several gods at the same time. He says, that is not possible. Rid yourselves of these idols. I wanna challenge you. Are there there tables that God needs to toss in your heart today? You see, in the context of 1 Corinthians 9, when he says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, honor God with your body, he was saying, quit your sexual morality. Some of us have thought life and actions and what we look at and what we dwell on, what you make ultimate, it is not pure. And I'm not here to beat you up, I'm here to say repent. I'm here to say get back to the presence of God. Whatever lie you've bought it into to think that's gonna satisfy your soul, unlike the God who created your soul, it's a lie. Deny the lie, replace it with the truth that God is life and in his presence is life abundant. And dwell on that. Finally, number four, start acting like the temple. It's a place of justice, a place of mercy, cleanliness. It's the the place of fellowship, reconciliation, healing, worship, and community, and much more. It was God's dwelling place on earth. Start acting like the temple. All right, I'm the student pastor, so I'm gonna do something I do with student ministry. Is that cool? Would you do me a favor and close your eyes for a minute? Because I wanna have a moment of anonymity between you and God. I'm gonna have three challenges, and if this is you, between you and the Lord, I I challenge you to take this seriously as a commitment to him. If you're here today, and Jesus needs to toss some tables in your life, God has brought some sin to your mind, and you wanna change and repent today, would you put your hand up for me and say, I need to quit this. I'm sorry, Lord, I wanna repent, I I wanna own up to my mistake, but I wanna trust in your sacrifice. Awesome, anybody else? Very cool, thank you for your boldness, y'all. Put your hands down. Number two, if you're here and you need to undo some bad theology and you need to recognize that God is pursuing you, that maybe you don't have a true grasp of your own value and you need to undo that. That's you today and you're like, I need to feel God's presence this week. Please speak to me, God. That's you, you put your hand up. Say, Lord, please speak to me. I wanna experience my value. I want to remind myself of the truth that you love me. Awesome. Awesome, you put your hands down. And finally, If you're here today and you're like, to be honest, I probably have never actually experienced the presence of God because I'm not a Christian. I haven't really trusted in Jesus to be my sacrifice, to bring me back into the presence of God. And if that's you, would you put your hand up for me? 
Like, I never did that, and I want the presence of God, and I want to be rid of my sin. Anybody in here? Awesome. Lord, we love you, and we seek to be your people. And I'm so thankful that from Genesis to Revelation, you were a God who pursues your people. I'm thankful that you were good. You were powerful and mighty, but you were good. Even though you could have snuffed us out, you decided to pursue us, to send Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, to bring us back into your presence. Pray that we'd see you as glorious as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.